Okay, so if you have your Bibles, um, Mark chapter 11. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today. We're going to be celebrating Palm Sunday this morning. We'll talk a little bit about what that is, what that means, why it's something to celebrate in preparation for Easter Sunday, which is next week, right? And so part of the point of this sermon is to get us better prepared for the week ahead, climaxing on Easter Sunday. And so what I want to do is I want to uh, have my readers, all three of y'all, come on up, y'all. It's amazing what a few years outside of California will do to you. I don't know how to do a plural you anymore without guys. y'all. <laughs> Use. <laughs> so what I want us to do is we're going to be reading the entire chapter. Okay, it's, it's 33 verses. We're going to read the whole chapter. You don't have to stand. I just want you to sit. If you have your Bible, feel free to read. But um, what I want you to do is to also just listen. I want you to... Uh, Invest in the narrative here. Try to put yourself in the setting. Try to see what's going on. Try to experience it as it's being read, okay? Mark chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry, seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple 
and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nation? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city as they were passing by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to them, to him, Rabbi, look, the fig trees which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to his mountain, to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift this time up to you now, Lord. I pray, God, that your word would, uh, would go forth clearly, Lord. Lord, I pray for myself that I would remember as I'm preaching up here that it is not my words that have any power, Lord. It is Scripture that changes the heart. And I'm thankful that I get to be an instrument to do that. And I'm thankful, Lord, for this church and for the people that you have brought here this morning that we would fellowship together and worship together and that we would all be changed, Lord, by Mark chapter 11 pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Mark chapter 11. It's quite a lot. I hope that you were listening and, and taking it in and that you were, um, you know, Efren, actually, can you turn me down quite a bit more here? Um, that you were taking it in and that uh, you were visualizing what's going on because this is the scene that is taking place. This is the Palm Sunday scene leading into Monday uh, with Jesus 
and the temple. And what, um, what I want to do is I want to look at this passage from about 30,000 feet, okay? I want to pull out some exegetical insights from the passage, and then what I want to do is then we will uh, dive down into a couple more intricate details in the chapter, what Mark is actually expressing and teaching, and then we will end with some implications and and practications, applications from the text. First, though, uh, as read by Jay, we have the triumphal entry of Jesus. And this is the story that, you know, coming in here today, when we said Palm Sunday, that's probably the extent of what you thought about it. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, um, and maybe you've heard a little bit about some of the background. You knew a little bit about the donkey or the colt, right, and the, the palm branches, What's taking place here at the beginning of Mark chapter 11 with Jesus entering into Jerusalem is the fulfillment, it's the triumphal entry because it is the fulfillment of messianic promises of the inauguration of the kingship of Jesus that the people are finally recognizing who Jesus is. He is the blessed Messiah. He is the king that has come to reign. He is the son of David. And so I have a couple passages to show why people would have seen this, why the readers of Mark would have picked up on this. And the first one is Genesis 49, 10, and 11. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. He ties his foal, that's his donkey, to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garment in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. This is something that's promised all the way back as Jacob is giving a blessing to his son Judah, that Judah would be the leader of his brothers. He's not the firstborn. Reuben's the firstborn, but he has forsaken that blessing because he slept with his father's concubine. The other two brothers, Levi and Simeon, they don't get the blessing because their hearts are full of violence and bloodshed. And so it is Judah that Genesis focuses on that has this massive turnaround in his life where he's willing to sacrifice himself for his brother Benjamin, and actually really for all his brothers. And so because of that, this blessing of kingship and leadership goes to Judah. And this is what the people were waiting for because David... The kingly line is from the tribe of Judah. And then as you notice, there's even some implications here. The the ruler's staff will not depart, right, until Shiloh comes. Well, who is coming right now? It is Christ. It is the Messiah who is coming. And then even all the way down to the detail of him tying his foal to the vine. This is a young donkey, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. The donkey is untied in our passage and then tied to Christ, who is the ruler. He is the choice vine. Then our next passage. is Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah 9.9 is picking up, right, on the imagery from Judah 49. 
And we see that it's being fulfilled here in Mark 11. Jesus is entering Jerusalem as the conquering king. But he's not a conquering king dressed in fine clothes when, and just sort of this extravagant uh, red carpet and, and uh, train behind him. Instead, it is like Zechariah 9.9 says, he is clothed in what? He is endowed in salvation. But his demeanor is humble. He's mounted on a donkey. So this conquering king is known as the king who will destroy the nations who oppose the Lord and his people. And then lastly, the people quote Psalm 118.26. They, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118.26 says, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. This was a song, a psalm, I should say, that was sung at the Feast of Tabernacles, memorializing the time in the wilderness when Israel was sheltered under the canopy of God's glory cloud, right? Do you remember, as the people left Egypt, they followed a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. They followed the Lord, right, in the wilderness. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a time to celebrate God's protection over his people immediately after leaving Egypt, It was also sung at the Passover, celebrating the victory of God over Egypt and his, vic- and his future victory over the enemies of his people. So what we see here is this is a kingly reception. The people realize Jesus as the promised king. And how do they respond? They respond by laying their coats down before him. Right? This is like the red carpet kind of treatment. Now listen to this. In 2 Kings, Jehu is anointed as king, and as he enters in, each of them quickly took off his cloak, and they spread it out at Jehu's feet on the steps. The trumpet was blown, and they shouted, Jehu is king. They recognize Jesus as king. That's why they're throwing their coats and their cloaks out before him. Right? But why the palms? Well, They're laying the palms down before Jesus. And again, remember, these palms, the only time they're actually mentioned as being used in such a way is at the Festival of Tabernacles. And so it's again a sign of the recognized fulfillment of the Messiah. Where they recognize that The Lord at the Feast of Tabernacles had covered over them. He was a canopy over them. And the palm branches signaled that. But interestingly enough, the palms are not put over Jesus, but under him. See, as he comes in, they lift him up on high. They recognize, or at least claiming to recognize, that he is the one from God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of what they have been waiting for. What are all these feasts, what are all these festivals pointing to? So Jesus comes as a king. 
And he comes in as a humble king, but he doesn't go to the palace. He goes to the temple. So he doesn't go to the political center. He goes to the priestly center. Why? Well, first, because it signifies his sacrificial death. This was the time of the Passover. Where was the sacrifice going to be? Where did the people go for the sacrifice? The temple. So Jesus is signifying the kind of death as the Passover lamb. This is why he came to Jerusalem in the first place. So that's one reason. The second reason is that he inspects the temple before returning the next day. Jesus doesn't find it a little odd that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left. He comes into the temple looking around and inspecting before he returns the next day to cleanse it. This is something that God actually does a few times in the Old Testament where God comes and he inspects before he either cleanses or destroys. We see this with the Tower of Babel where he says, let us go down and see what they are doing. And then after he sees, he chastises. He does the same thing in Genesis 18 with Sodom. He sends his angels to inspect, to see what is taking place. And then he destroys. And we're seeing the exact same thing here when it comes to the temple. Jesus first comes and inspects, and he will return the next day to cleanse. Okay, let's move on then now. So we have that part of the story, those first 11 verses, which are probably the kind of more well-known parts of Palm Sunday. But how does the rest of this play in? Well, moving into verse 12, before returning to the temple the next day, We have this story of Jesus cursing a fig tree. And so the way that Mark has laid this out is he has the the story of the fig tree, then Jesus in the temple, and then back to the fig tree. And this is something that Mark actually does a few times in his gospel. And the reason he does this is he actually does it so that the stories by the reader are linked together. He does this with the healing of Jairus' child. When Jesus is going to Jairus' house, it is then in the middle of the story of Jairus that the woman with the continuous bleeding comes and touches Jesus. Then we have that story played out, and then Jesus goes back with Jairus. Mark picks up on the story again. And what he does, he does this in such a way to link the stories together. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. See, because what happens is Jesus, before he returns to the temple, he curses the fig tree because it's not producing fruit. And what we see is this is an acted out parable. The fig tree represents the unfaithful Israelites. Hosea 9.10 says, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the wilderness. I viewed your ancestors like an early fig on a fig tree in its first season. See, this judgment of the fig tree represents Jesus' judgment on Israel, which is then initiated at the cleansing of the temple. And the cleansing of the temple is prophetic of its destruction. And ironically enough, this is actually the last miracle that Jesus performs before his death. The last miracle he performs in the Gospel of Mark 
is not of healing, but of destroying the fig tree. Jesus has come not only as a king, he has also come to put an end to the hypocritical and faithless Israel and establish the true temple, which is himself. Mark 7, 6 alludes to this. Jesus said to them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine the commandments of, of men. So like the fig tree, Israel has become fruitless and is now under God's judgment. Now this we see in the text itself as Jesus is cleansing out the temple. He began to teach in verse 17 and said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. So Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 56 there, and then he's quoting from Jeremiah 7. In Isaiah 56, oh, it's already up. Okay. It says, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples or all the nations. In this text leading up to this verse here, you have God speaking to the eunuchs and the foreigners who have come and joined themselves to the Lord. And he says, if you have joined yourself to me and you are going to submit to my law and submit to my covenant, then it doesn't matter if you're a eunuch or a foreigner or an Israelite, you are free to come and worship. And there should be nothing standing in your way. But what is Jesus chastising Israel for here? They are standing in the way. They are putting a stumbling block before the people coming to worship. Then he quotes Jeremiah 7. And in Jeremiah 7, I want us to read, I'll read it to you, verses 1 through 11, so that we have the context of what Jesus is saying here. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, 
which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, sometimes when we think of this passage, we think of Israel being robbers in the temple and, you know, because they're stealing from people and the way that they're handling the money changing and the selling of the sacrifices. But it's become a robber's den. Robbers don't steal in their den. Robbers hide in their den. This is the imagery that Jesus is getting at. See, they deal falsely. They oppress the poor. They make people twice the sons of hell that they are. They pervert the word of God. They teach the doctrines of men as if they are the commandments of God. And then they go to the temple as if it were a hiding place from their sins. The temple has simply become a place to escape the consequences of their sin. And so Jesus has come to signify the destruction of that temple. And interestingly enough, after Jesus chastises them and has come to signify the destruction of this earthly temple that has been perverted the chief priests and the scribes hear this and they began seeking, as Mark says, how to destroy Jesus. Listen to the irony in that. Jesus has come to signify the destruction of the temple because he is establishing himself as the true temple. And the response from the religious leaders is to try to save the old temple and destroy the true temple. Jesus has come as the true temple. He is a place where robbers cannot hide. But the chief priests and the scribes want to destroy the true temple and protect the false temple that has become the place for them to hide in the darkness. And their false temple is ultimately what is destroyed as God's judgment for trying to destroy the true temple. And Israel has become like Babylon. In the last few verses, we go back and Jesus is questioned by the authority of the temple. They come to Jesus and they, religious leaders challenge him, by what authority do you have to do these things? What authority does Jesus have to cleanse the temple. And Jesus responds basically by saying, let me ask, answer your question with another question. And if you answer my question, then I will answer yours. Was John the Baptist's ministry from God or from men? Well, that's the conundrum. Because John the Baptist had declared that Jesus was the divine Messiah. Therefore, if John's ministry was from God, then as a prophet, Jesus is the Messiah. And it does give him authority, not only over the temple, but over them. And so they refuse to answer out of fear. And so they lie and they say they do not know. And Jesus responds by refusing to answer them. But the answer really is in the question that he asks, right? He basically says, I will not tell you 
what I know since you refuse to confess the truth about what you know. Jesus has authority over the temple because the temple is his father's house. He is the son. He is the Messiah. He is the heir. And so it belongs to him. See, Christ has come not just as the king, but as we've, as we've been talking about the past couple weeks here, Christ has also come as the true temple. And for most of his ministry, especially in the Gospel of John, he seeks to keep it quiet and doesn't allow people uh, to give him a crown, to take him and put him on the throne yet. But here in John 11, he triumphantly enters into the city of David with the public proclamation of his kingship. And we are commanded to recognize him as our king as well. See, Easter is meaningless for us if we do not recognize Jesus as our king. You cannot have Jesus as your resurrected savior if you are not going to have him as king of your life. If you are not going to have his lordship over every area of your life. Now, most of us in here are probably, maybe even for most of our lives, have been regular churchgoers, call ourselves Christians, have a belief in Jesus. But the warning to us from this passage this morning, the warning that I want us to hear is that if we are going to call ourselves Christians, we need to be careful that we do not become like faithless Israel. See, for Israel, the temple had become the robber's den, right? It had become a place for them to hide. It had become a place for them to proclaim their religious dedication. But it had also become a symbol of their religious hypocrisy. So Jesus, for many people in the same way, has become a robber's den. Because for a lot of people, Jesus is nothing more than a place to escape the consequences of their sin and stay in the darkness and put a nice mask on in front of people and look like they have things together and look like they're a good Christian when really their hearts are far from him. What we need to recognize now, church, is that as 1 Peter 4.17 tells us, judgment begins with the household of God. Jesus will destroy the fruitless. He will come and destroy the apostate churches. And Christians who claim to follow Christ, but their lives look like faithless Israel calling on Him as the temple of the Lord for salvation, but living in unrepentant, habitual sin, living in idol worship, wanting to call on Him as King and Lord of their lives, except living as if they are their own Lord. He will come and destroy that too. See, if you notice, I didn't go back to the end of the fig tree story. Jesus destroys the fig tree Then he cleanses the temple. Then after he leaves, it is Peter who notices 
the tree. And he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. The fig tree is destroyed by the judgment of Christ and the response to his disciples is to have faith in God. See, this is what keeps you from the destruction of the judgment of Christ. Faith. Genuine faith in the Lord. See, Jesus loves his bride, but he will not tolerate adultery. And I will say that the American church or the church in the West, however you want to describe it, the church that we're dealing with at large right now has abandoned in many ways genuine faith in Christ. The kind of faith that Jesus is talking about here and resembles more often than not faithless Israel. They have turned to worship other gods of this world while calling on the temple of the Lord, thinking they are going to heaven Because they said a prayer once. Or because they're pretty consistent in church. Or because they serve on Sunday. But saying a prayer once, being consistent in church, even serving in the church, none of that means anything apart from genuine faith. None of that will get you into heaven. None of that will cleanse you before God. None of that will keep you from being like the withered fig tree. The church, like the temple also, is supposed to be a place of teaching, healing, and salvation. But instead, much of the church has turned, instead of teaching the word of God, has turned into shallow self-help, ear-tickling messages. And pastors who are too afraid to stand on the truth of God's word because of how it will offend people. And instead of healing the soul, it has become about felt needs and social justice. And instead of salvation, it has become a place of dead religion and cultural Christianity. So the church, in its current state, like the fig tree, like the temple, is under God's judgment. And many churches will gather next week on Easter and God will hate their gatherings. The church must repent as we have become like faithless Israel. And this begins with us as individuals submitting ourselves to Christ as King. How will the church return to life Look at how Jesus responds to the disciples about the fig tree. Faithlessness is the problem. Faithlessness was the problem for Israel, and it's the same problem today. We have faithless unbelievers. 
We have faithless government, a faithless country, faithless churches, and faithless Christians. Built on pragmatism and entertainment and celebrity pastors with certain personality types. Government that hates God and blasphemes His holy name and His law with their policies, which is merely nothing more than a reflection of the faithless people in our nation. And faithless Christians who spend the vast majority of their lives focused on themselves and their own comfort and their own success. Jesus says with prayer we can move mountains, but what mountain is greater than faithlessness? What a mountain to be moved. Is there anything more difficult than building faith where none exists? It would be easier to move a mountain. Yet genuine faith in God is the only solution to these problems. You will not overcome your past without genuine faith. You will not overcome your sin habits without genuine faith. You will not overcome your idols without genuine faith. You will not be the husband or the wife that you want to be without genuine faith. You cannot be the mother or father that you want to be or that God calls you to be without genuine faith. You cannot be the brother, the sister, the friend, the employee, the servant without genuine faith. In Christ. And you cannot be truly washed, sanctified, or saved apart from that faith. And so then Jesus categorizes the fruit of this faith in two ways. The first is prayer, and then the second is forgiveness. Prayer is not just something we do before bed at night. Hopefully it's not something that we only do on once a month on Wednesday nights. Hopefully, it's not just when you're in a tight spot and you have those foxhole prayers to the Lord. Prayer is so much more. Prayer is it's communicating with God and it is truly in prayer that we enter into the battle against the forces of darkness. And what our church, what we as Christians are desperately in need of today is faithful prayer. Without it, we will not see revival in our churches. We will not see revival in our lives. And while faith is a prerequisite for prayer, there is nothing like prayer that bolsters faith. And so my first challenge for you this week as we have these few days before Easter is to spend time in prayer each day this week seeking to better understand and submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. Now one of the ways that my wife does this is um, we have kids. So waking up early and trying to set aside a dedicated time to prayer can be interrupted very easily. So what Michelle does is she sets alarm on her, an alarm on her phone that goes off every hour throughout the day. And it's a reminder for her to stop and pray for different things every hour. 
Maybe that's something you need to do this week. Or maybe you do need to get up a little bit earlier and spend time with the Lord. Spend time in prayer every day this week, pleading with the Lord for faith to grow in your life and for revival in this country, in the church. But the second fruit of genuine faith that Jesus mentions here is forgiveness. Because nothing is quite so hindering to our faith and our prayers like unforgiveness and bitterness. Nothing keeps the church divided like bitterness. In fact, I would argue that if you go on social media or you talk to your Christian friends around the country, that you'll see that the church is making herself known right now, not by love, but by unforgiveness and bitterness. The mountain of faithlessness will not be moved if we harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. And so the second challenge is in this week leading up to Easter, take the opportunity to seek the Lord and ask Him to reveal any areas of bitterness and unforgiveness you may have in your heart. Maybe it's toward a loved one. Maybe it's toward someone from your past. Maybe a coworker. Maybe it's someone in this church. Maybe you have bitterness towards God himself. Ask the Lord to forgive you for your bitterness and unforgiveness toward others because it is a sin. And then ask him to heal you of your unforgiveness. And if possible this week, ask him to give you the courage and the opportunity to seek reconciliation with the person who has wronged you. Your responsibility is not to make the relationship work or to make the other person repent or to make the other person say they're sorry for whatever they have done. But your responsibility in genuine faith is to make sure that you have done everything you can to make things right and that you are not harboring unforgiveness in your heart anymore. And if you take those two challenges seriously this week, you will be ready for Easter next Sunday. You will come ready to celebrate. You will come ready to worship with a joyful and much lighter heart. So let us not be like faithless Israel. Let us not turn from the Lord and claim to be Christians, but worship false gods instead. Instead, let us recognize that Jesus Christ is King and He is sitting on His throne right now. And he is going to return. And it is a cause for faithful Christians to rejoice. But for hypocritical and faithless Christians to fear. We need God to give us true, genuine faith in him. And one of the means by which God gives his grace and helps transform us in our faith is communion. And that's what we're going to be doing now together. So as we come to the table with a heart of faith and a heart of repentance, 
God uses this together as we come together and do this to grow us and encourage us that we would come and remember the sacrifice of the Lord and proclaim the hope of His return. And so as I pray, if Jimmy would come up and if Greg would come up to release the rose for communion, if you have found yourself like Israel in this passage, then before you come up and take communion, take a moment and confess and repent and get on the right, in the right place with God. If you are not saved, then communion is not for you. This is for believers. But I pray this morning that you would cry out to the Lord for salvation. Salvation from your sins, maybe salvation from your bitterness and unforgiveness. And as he frees you of that, that you would come in this new life and come and take of the Lord's Supper with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do pray that we would understand the need as a church to have true, genuine faith in recognizing who you are as King of our lives and Savior from our sins, Lord. It is by your cross that you have conquered sin and conquered death And that blessing, because of the price you paid, has now been given to us, Lord. And I pray that we would be thankful and joyful and humble because of that, Lord. And that as we come and take communion this morning, that our hearts would be focused on you, Lord, and encouraged as we partake in this together, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.